Hello, and welcome to the MIC Plus One podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project to product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, founder and CEO of Tastop, and best selling author of Project to Product How to Survive and Thrive in the Age of Digital Disruption with the Flow Framework. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Justin Watts, Director of Agile Change at Lloyds Banking Group, one of the UK's big four banks. Justin holds an MSc in Lean Enterprise from Cardiff University, an MSc in Business Research from Buckingham University, where he's an honorary research fellow and is currently studying for a PhD. Justin started out in manufacturing, then moved to Lloyd's frontside operations, where he was head of systems thinking. He's now applying those same principles to Lloyd's digital transformation and has some critical insights on how we need to change the thinking of our leadership and, in fact, of, of the entire organization. I encourage you to listen to Justin making a fascinating case on how we need to move from old school ways of thinking about economies of scale to understanding and optimizing for the economics of flow. I'm thrilled to have him share his learnings with us. So with that, let's just get started. Welcome, everyone. I'm here with Justin Watts, who's the Director of Agile Transformation and the Methods and Tooling Leads at Lloyd's Group. And I got to meet Justin through interactions around the masterclass that he was running for the Lloyd's Transformation Leadership Group, which actually included one of Lloyd's board's members. I've been amazed at how Justin's approach changing this organization. Justin, I think the, the organization's more than a, a few years old, or around 250, I think. And I'm just really excited for you to share your experiences, share your learnings as you moved from sort of the manufacturing side of the world to applying these concepts of flow to Lloyd's group and to helping the, the group transform. So welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great. It's been a bit of a journey, actually. I think I describe it as being on one of the most intense learning journeys over the probably the last 12 years in different parts or, well, different parts of industry, service, manufacturing, now kind of predominantly in software. But I think I start in the right place. I think that's part of the secret. I mean, like you said, um, Lloyd's is a, a typical, probably typical corporate organization, kind of quintessentially British as well, in terms of some of the culture that goes with it, but been around for a, a long, a long time, like you said, over 250 years. So, but I, I didn't start in banking. I'm as far away from a bank as you can kind of get, probably, both in terms of geographically being nowhere near London and, and growing up in South Wales. And uh, having a background of mainly most of my family's being kind of uh, miners, coal miners, not nothing to do with banking. So, but probably grew up in a world where you know manufacturing and steel and iron and that is part of the heritage, really, that you know, where, where it came from. So, I think we chatted before, but I probably didn't have my first job until I was twenty six. Wait, wait, what did um, you do before you were twenty six? I kind of went to university, and my passion was sport and sports science, and I played rugby at a a pretty decent level and I did a bit of messing around after university and I ended up going to Australia to play rugby for 12 months and kind of came back and was not desperately looking for work but mum and dad were not going to fund me anymore so I needed to get a bit, a bit of work so I, uh, I ended up working as a quality technician in a, in a manufacturing company and uh, the company basically turned uh, pulp paper packaging into well, you know, your Amazon boxes you get today, right? So kind of part of a big old supply chain that went from forestry through to recycling. And um, my job there is quality technician. I, I got to interact with a typical kind of Japanese company who demanded very high quality. It was LG at the time making TV monitors. And uh, that's when I first stumbled across, you know, the quality movement. And they called it Six Sigma at the time. And that's what I was thought I was learning, but I was learning things that have been around for a very long time, right? And and I kind of got to understand uh, some of the characters were important, like Duran and, 
and Demin and, and people like that, right? So I was kind of I was kind of at that point uncovering stuff that I didn't really know how fundamentally important they were, but I was enjoying it and we tended to probably then went more down the route of and trying to understand this thing that people were talking about lean at the time. I twenty six, so it's like, you know, quite a few years back now, twenty maybe twenty years. That's surprising to myself to even say that. But lean was the big thing then and it's probably still you know, it is still around now, right? But it was like right in this heyday then and everyone was trying to do lean transformation in manufacturing, right? And so I went into the masters in lean at it was called Lean Enterprise Research Center then in Cardiff University, right? And their reputation was kind of worldwide in terms of their research and their teaching and everything else. So I was really, really lucky that I managed to get myself funded to do that. And then at the same time, I was taken from the manufacturing operation and asked to be part of a lean transformation across Europe. And at that time, then I was learning from some of these people who were the really good in their field and then doing a transformation. So I was learning theory and putting into practice and we were working with McKinsey at the time. And I probably spent most of my time arguing with their consultants about what I was learning and what they were teaching me and what they were telling me to do on the ground. So that was a, a massive learning experience again. And then I, I, I hope you're not repeating that experience, but I have a feeling that you are. So I, 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 it's come back on me a few times. Yeah, this, this, this whole thing around learning and working with consultancies. But I think then I was really inspired to try and move from manufacturing because I'd learned quite a bit around that the theory and applying this, this thing that I was learning into a service environment, service industry, which is when I joined Lines Banking Group. But I joined to look at how we could improve in the frontline operations. And that's when I came across the work of, I think we mentioned it before, a guy called John Seddon, the Vanguard Methods. And how do you use kind of systems principles and systems thinking principles to think about how you would redesign operations basically to respond more quickly if you like and more in a, in a way that actually did what mattered to customers and it was really really it was a key thing for me and even though I've been studying lean with Cardiff I learned more about what I thought I was learning when I started to understand John's stuff in the service environment about what TPS was all about not lean not what the consultants had turned it into but actually the core fundamental things that I was learning about Ono's method around how TPS actually worked and applying the principles to actually service operations in terms of how they work from a customer perspective. And that's when I kind of started to understand that the things I was being taught were actually being commoditized by consultancies and sold. And they really lost the thread on what this was all about. You know, what problem, what, where did lean come from? What problem were they trying to solve? Ono was the inventor of it, Taichi Ono. So I just went and actually learning from John was, well, that's where I need to go and have a look at this stuff. Not lean as being publicized everywhere by all this different writing. Go back to the source, right? And I started getting back into this kind of weird thing where I was, every time I was looking at something, I would need to go back to the source, right? And it really made me more and more inquisitive and intuitive about the source of things. And then I think... As lawyers were starting to get closer to a transformation and a digital transformation, some of the work that we were doing in operations was getting some attention. And long story short, but the, the transformation division and digital as it was then, kind of we joined forces on, okay, so what are we really learning about how you redesign frontline operations? And what does that mean then for how that flow should flow through then into software protection or the digital side of it? And I think... That's when I kind of moved from my 
job that I was doing there in terms of applying systems principles to frontline operations to taking over role that the one I'm doing now, this thing called Agile, you know, this thing that other consultancies were selling to big organizations in terms of you need to do this Agile thing. So again, where did I go back to the source, right? And a thing that John said and always taught me, right, really early on was that whenever you're looking at something is what problem were they trying to solve and do we have the same problem? So when I first took on the role, I went and researched because I'm a researcher as well. You know, I'm a, I got an academic background. Some people call it nerdy, like, but I quite enjoy reading. But you know, I, I went to the source. I went and did the research on the Agile Manifesto. I picked up all sorts of papers and just really got into it. And essentially, when I did my research and I tried to answer the question, "What problem are they trying to solve?" We don't have to go through it now, but essentially the problems with the waterfall method, sequential method, not being fast enough, not being able to respond to the requirements. Did we have the same problem in Lloyd? Yes, absolutely. And actually then the link to TPS was, you know, Ono was trying to solve the same problem, right? He was trying to respond to the rate of demand. He he had a cost problem. He couldn't afford to produce like Ford. He couldn't afford to produce like mass production. He just couldn't afford it, right? He didn't have the natural resources to do it. So he had to he came up with the concept of flow in manufacturing. And that's when I really started to think about, okay, if we're really going to go after an agile strategy, what is this all about? Because I just felt that the agile movement was going down exactly the same route as the lean movement, where it had been, again, commoditized and sold by big consultancies. And they really lost the thread, really lost the source of the problem to be solved. And that's when we just sat back and said, well, let's simplify our agile strategy and let's base it all on flow. So Justin, pause there for a second. I think you hit on some some really key things. And so you were head of systems thinking on frontline operations. And I think this is a success pattern I've seen before where traditional businesses have actually been able to transform much more quickly when they've done that kind of systems lean flow oriented transformation in another part of their business, be that you know their call centers, their frontline operations, their customer services. And I've seen this in, in the world's largest insurance companies, as an example, where they've applied that systems thinking to a portion of their operations. And at a business level, it becomes much easier for them to understand the, the benefits of it within IT. So tell, and then of course, we've seen it be misapplied, which, which you're touching on as well. So you're just saying it was going back to first principles in terms of back back as, as head of systems thinking on the frontline operations. Yeah. What worked is actually going, rather than leaning on some crutches that were being provided by, by various consultancies and so on, you were concerned that, that those were missing some of the core essence. And I think, I think you just nailed it, right? Ford could not, sorry, Toyota could not afford to, to compete with Ford without applying these things. So you're saying it was similar within the frontline operations and yeah. you actually did manage to, to drive forward that transformation, not on leaning on pre-canned crutches, but but actually going back to first principles. Yeah, absolutely. First principles and heavily kind of influenced by, again, we've got to give the credit to John's work and what he taught me about the actual crux of the Toyota production system was the ability to respond to demand, right? He was able to produce cars at the rate of demand required by the customer. And that opened up a world of understanding for me around things like requisite variety, over-standardization of processes from a customer perspective, because the thing that customers want when they come to us for a service is for us to do what matters to them, not for us to read in the rule book, right? And lots of mistakes with Lean was taking the the, uh, principle of standardization and apply it in service, and it creates havoc. It creates this thing called failure demand where 
you know, people just cannot get their thing that matters to them done because we've over-standardized the process and we read in the rule book kind of thing. And actually, it doesn't work. It creates more cost. And if you actually think about how would we design a service that only did the things that matter to customers, then guess what? It's far cheaper. Your costs just fall out of the system and you're only doing the things that matter to customers, right? So it, it's really counterintuitive to lots of organizations that if we if we do what customers want, it's gonna co- you know, it's gonna cost us a lot of money. Well, no, actually it doesn't cost less. If you do the thing that really matters to customers, it costs less, right? Now, that's a very transactional way of looking at it. But the other thing that we looked at is say, for example, you are a customer who really wants to take a mortgage out with us. The thing that's really important in a mortgage application is predictability and speed and flow, right? It's underpinned by flow. If you come to us with, this is the house I want to buy, I'm interested. The thing that really matters to most of our customers is being able to give you an answer as soon as possible. And that's where we started to see, well, actually the concept of flow and removing waste in the system to get the answer back to the customer was absolutely critical for us in terms of how we transform the operation based on what matters to the customers. So that was our first insight into if we can't do the thing there and then, which is very difficult, you know, an ambition should be, why can't we give a customer mortgage on the first time they contact us, right? But sometimes that's, that's not able to do that. But if we can't do that, when's the next time we can actually give them the mortgage? We have to think about compressing the time it takes to do everything because better service costs less. And that's what I had drummed into me by John all the time. Better service costs less. And, um, you know, we learned so much about how we take those principles then from the customer-facing operation into in two ways, right? Number one was, if we're really studying what matters to customers, surely we should be basing our software solutions on those things that we're learning. And actually, what we're learning about time and compression of time is equally as important when we're delivering software to solve the problem as well. So I think what we're able to do is, is when we're not there yet, but, you know, stitching the demand from a customer perspective through to the actual solution that we produce in code is something that we're really now starting to understand that we knit those things together based on the same principles. Absolutely. And by the way, we'll put a link to John's work in the additional materials section. But I think I, I think th- this is the different kind of thinking that you've been able to well, apply first on the on the front line. But now let's talk about what you're doing in terms of the, the software and IT side. But yeah, better service costs less and actually re-engineering around the customer rather than around internal processes or internal silos leads you to that result. So. Absolutely. Okay, so so now let's. So you you got to learn that as head of systems thinking that worked, and then just tell us a bit about how you ended up deciding to take on what may well have been a much bigger challenge now to, to doing this to uh, on the actual core digital IT and then software side at Lloyd. Yeah, I just think I just think it was the way the world was moving. Right, everyone was moving towards, and it was probably about four years ago that I kind of started the lead into the role maybe and then probably about two years officially doing it but the world was going down the route of digital transformation everything's digital transformation and I was a little bit curious around well some of the early signs were that we were just gonna base our transformation on I gotta be really, really blunt but gadgets widgets technology right and yeah. I'm like it's not gonna work it's just not gonna work I mean number one I did the research around some of the figures around the amount of you know IT and code that gets created that never gets used. You know that that's that's a massive problem for me. If it's over fifty percent, then there's something wrong. We're doing the wrong thing, right? And again, I was 
heavily in, influenced by John, who then put me in touch, not in touch, because lots of these people are not with us anymore, but they work like many people who uh, kind of inspired me then. Russell Acoff, right? He, he always said things around doing the wrong thing right there. You know, I could see our organization was starting to do the wrong thing right there. We were starting to put all eggs in the basket around digital and everything was just digital, digital, digital transformation. I'm like, that's not the problem. A lot of the problem was within the way the organization is structured, is put together, the way that we specialize and functionalize everything, the way that we measure the wrong things, the way that we still use outdated views of motivation in terms of setting targets and all those kinds of things. I knew from some of the things that I learned around Deming's work and Russell Acoff that all of the things that we were trying to design the organization around, the normal way that we organize organizations, if you like, we're still going to be there no matter how digitized or transformed we became. So essentially the transformation was far deeper than what we were talking about. And then that's what I thought, right, I think it's where I'm going to have more influence over the change is if I can kind of start to be part of that world, be part of the digital transformation world and try and help it to, to learn from, you know, the history that we've got, not just in Lloyd's, but the history around how organizations tend to fail because Nothing to do with digital or technology, but the way that they put together, right? And the assumptions people carry around with them and the things that we think work, like, you know, again, target-driven behavior and we don't do it anymore, but performance-related pay and all that kind of stuff is kind of just outdated and you're not going to transform any organization if you still got those things in place. You know, you can do as much cloud conversion as you want, much technology focus, much digitization as you want, but if you don't transform the organization's thinking, then over time, it's going to be the same as what you've always got. So that was my inspiration, really, for wanting to move from what I'd seen in operations to this big thing we were going to do as a bank, as a transformation, because for me, it was far more than digital. Okay, excellent. And I really, I think, want to now jump into some of the principles of practice that you apply, but then I think, I think we can unpack some of these things, because as you've told me, as you've told your leadership, a lot of what you learned at the Lean Enterprise Center is that there's physics to flow that, that you can't ignore. That you yeah. actually will apply to, to change the thinking. And I think the way that you just paint the picture of why these things go sideways and so many organizations are investing so much in doing the wrong things right is yep. really at the core of the problem of, of yep. transformation. Absolutely. It's better, as, as Akoff said, it's better to do the right thing wrong for a bit, <laughs> right? And learn. Right. And, and, yeah. and learn. And, and you're right. I mean, let's go back to what I talked about earlier. Like, I'm not an agilist, right? I, I'm not. I'm just, that's just not me. That's not what I've grown up on. But I've grown up on a menu of flow. It underpinned everything I've done since I started looking at transformation. And what you said is really interesting, right? When I was doing my master's and when I was doing this transformation across Europe, I stumble across the factory physics framework. I mean, the book is mind-blowing. If it, if it, and I'm not that good at maths, but I got a pretty sound understanding, right? But it's... It's a framework that really shows the physics behind flow. And I think it's because what I've learned as well is that, you know, being a, being a business researcher, right, there's different ways to look at the problems, you know, objective and subject and so on and so forth, right? But I think that, you know, I was always an objective researcher and that's what I normally kind of like, how it, how it helps me is to see things that are kind of a bit more objective and kind of built on physics and the and mathematical and and I know there's much more to it in terms of the psychology to change, how people actually work in a system, right? But for me, it's kind of, you can't really argue with the physics of flow, right? And 
and the relationship between throughput, work in progress, cycle time, those kinds of things, right? So, but what I really learned, one of the things that really stood out for me, and I think is to try and articulate it, was I stumbled across queuing theory, right? And when I started to look at this, based on what I just said around the counterintuitive thinking in organization, if you've got an organization which is absolutely obsessed with cost management, right, and utilization and keeping everybody busy, and you look at queuing theory, those two things don't go together. And what I mean by that is, queuing theory quite clearly shows that if you load a system to anywhere greater than 80%, and depending on variability, you're going to start to get problems with time right, and flow. So if you've got an organization which thinks about maximizing utilization and efficiency as a way that they've always thought and the way they've always measured, and you take the physics that underpins queuing theory, the two things don't go, don't go together because essentially if you want good flow, you've got to have some protective capacity. Right? And that's, that is a critical thing that we see in our organization. And what you find is how that manifests itself in some of the typical agile principles is we don't limit WIP. Right, we just push it in and push it in and keep pushing it in and keep hoping that we're going to get more work out. And counterintuitively, it starts to slow down. Right, so from a, a senior leadership position, if you can't kind of start to understand the assumptions that we kind of run with us in terms of how the organization works, and this is a classic example around efficiency and resource utilization, and you, you can't tackle those things, then essentially they're just going to keep pushing work into a system which slows it down reduces time to market and actually reduces productivity. And those counterintuitive things are really difficult to see if you haven't got the right measures, right? So, and this is where I think that a lot of companies go wrong with like the cookie cutter kind of Spotify kind of models that they put in is that they don't ever challenge the assumptions that have been in the old organization and they just carry them through. They just carry them through the new world. So, you know, people are trying to do agile transformations with teams loaded 100% utilization. It's just not going to work. You're not going to get any improvements in time to market with teams who are fully loaded all the time because what happens is, and this is clear because we see it all the time, is when there's too much work in progress, you get context switching and then you get basically people putting work down, picking work up multitasking and actually productivity goes down right so it's very very counterintuitive but what i'm trying to say is you have to challenge the thinking and the assumptions that we built the old thing on before we actually think about how we transform the new thing and to your point earlier the way that we try to do that in our transformation is move away from you know do this do this do this do this a method to actually the principles and I, I, I think that's what you wanted me to chat a little bit more about in terms of, okay, so why did we choose those principles and how does it relate to what we just said? Yeah, and just hold there for a second, Justin, because I, th- I think you just, to me, just hit the most essential and important point, right? Which is, which is understanding, and we don't have to call it queuing theory for every executive, but understanding the actual dynamics of flow. And when those more, most core principles is that when you, when you load things to 100%, which is so, and I'll actually go a little bit deeper. One of my core reasons for creating that flow framework as it is, is just to expose these dynamics to leadership so that they, yeah. they could actually change their thinking and understand this doesn't work. This, this, this truly goes against the laws of flow. Those laws have been around for, for several decades now, right? They've been very well documented by people for product development, like Don Reinhardstein and others, right? So yeah. you've been able to apply them across your entire career. Yet for me, the most disconcerting finding of looking at the last two years, it's been two years since, since Project to Product was out there and the flow framework was out there. The last two years of applying the flow framework is that 
WIP and overloaded value streams are the number one problem that we see across every enterprise organization, even though it is one of the most obvious laws of flow, right? And it is in, fast, in a fascinating way. It's one of the easiest to remedy, right? Where you yep. actually, you know, you need to understand it at a business level, obviously, do the right thing in terms of managing WIP instead of having it manage you. And you actually get more of the results that you're after in terms of velocity and capacity and so on. Absolutely. Quite counterintuitive, right? Because... Yeah. Who's going to build in protective capacity? Because that costs a lot of money, apparently, but it doesn't really. Yeah, exactly. So, and I think that's the key thing. And so what I would love about, so I just go through some of these and, and let's dig in because what I love about what you've done about the creating Lloyd's transformation principles and practices is that they capture this in a way that's meant to be, that's just much more tangible and meaningful to business leaders. So aligning work, improving relentlessly, learning rapidly what matters, optimizing the flow of work, making work visible, and then driving out fear to do that. So I, I think I, I got all of those right in, in, in some yeah. more. But if you could just take us through some of what's behind this and how you're basically trying to make sure that these dynamics, what you talk of as the laws around flow, what you've actually seen put in action, and you've seen the dysfunctions of not understanding them, if you could just unpack some of these uh, yes. seven principles for us, that, that, or six principles, I should say. I think you're working on a seventh. <laughs> yeah, I'll start with optimize the flow, group because there's a thread, you're right, in terms of the thing that underpins our strategy is flow, right? For me, it's kind of like, why, why did we go there? Because we were implementing an agile transformation. I went back to the source. And when I did my research, it was very simple, you know, and simplification of the strategy, the flow is what's going to give us our, it's just going to give us our constancy of purpose, right? Because it's not around stand-ups and ceremonies. They all enable us to flow at the end of the day, right? So flow is what we're based on. We started with the principle of flow as the center of everything we were doing, right? And the way we think about these principles and practices is a, is a lead-in measure, right? An absolute core lead-in measure for better outcomes in terms of you know, better throughput, better cycle time, less whip, better value delivery from a customer perspective. So the, the, these principles are a lead-in measure or lead-in way to actually produce better outcomes. Because another mistake that you know, I've learned not to make because I've made it myself is focusing on the lagging measures, right? Focusing on value creation, focusing on time to market. They're great. We need them, but actually they're as a result of doing things differently, right? You get better flow by working differently. You get better flow by putting in better practices, right? So the, the principles and practices are our way of saying, well, these are a set of leading things which will lead to better outcomes. For example, right, the one I use a lot is I think it's in my bio, but, you know, I'm in my 40s now, but I still like to keep myself fit, right? And I like to do triathlon, and I go one of these personalities, which means I have to do things to the extreme, right? So I ended up doing Ironman triathlons. And one of the things that's really key when you're naturally a bigger chap who played rugby all his life, and you want to do Ironman triathlons, and weight is critically important, right? So um, I, I set about a program of trying to lose some weight whilst I was training, right? And it kind of occurred to me, my lagging measure was the weight on the scales. And just by trying to look at the scales and wish I was light, I wasn't going to do anything, right? So the leading measures were things like my calorie intake, whether I did my training program, have I done my stretching, whatever, right? But there was a set of leading measures that if I knew that if I'd done those things differently, like ate differently, stuck to my program, da 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 I get on the scales and the lagging measure would all of a sudden go, oh, yeah, you're, you're a bit lighter, well done, right? But just by staying at the scales, wishing to get lighter, nothing was going to happen, right? And it's the same thing with, with what yeah. we're doing in Lloyd's, right? That we think that 
keeping our eye on these principles as our leading indicators for better outcomes in terms of flow and value delivery are, are what makes sense, right? So the flow one was where we started. And then we started to think about what are all the things that actually help the delivery more quickly of the right things to customers, right? So classic thing that we took from our operations learnings was how do you learn rapidly what matters, right? And we've kept the language really consistent as well. And the things that we learned well about how to redesign a process flow was to really understand what matters to customers and then base your design around that and the better service costs less, right? So you know, the practices that sit underneath our learn rapidly what matters are make sure you do your design research up front and learn from what really matters. You know, we got pools and data lakes all over the place. What's it actually telling us? What's the data telling us? And we use the language around MVP a lot, but one of the things we really want to be able to do is learn from experimentation, right? If you can't get things to market in any kind of shape or form quickly through flow, then you can't learn from experimentation either, right? You'll just end up going back down waterfalls. So three practices which underpin learn rapidly what matters are those there, right? So you need to learn rapidly what matters to be able to produce the right thing and to start reducing, you know, the the, the industry classic problem of all code that gets, you know, a lot of code that gets created never get, never sees the light of day. You know, part of flow, making flow work is actually knowing where the work is. So our principle about making work visible is completely in line with improving flow. If you can't see it, it's very difficult to manage it. And not only are we talking about visualization of work, but we mean measurement here as well. So all the things that we you know, talked to you about in terms of like the right measures are part of making things visible. If you can't see it, it's very difficult to take the right action on it. Aligning work is, and there's no particular order to this. The thing that we find really cool about this is the system, right? They all interact with each other and they all play off each other. And I'll come on to that a little bit more, but what is that actually tell us at the moment? The most powerful one of these principles is drive out fear. But anyway, align work, right? Is closely connected with learn rapidly what matters because lots of organizations start with OKRs and clarifying work items, backlog prioritization, and then think that's it. But if you're learning rapidly what matters, then you've got a quick feedback loop in terms of actually that might change. So your OKR might change based on you know what you're learning from your experimentation. They all work together. And then the key one around improve relentlessly, funny enough, was it's just basically taking the other principles because we kind of measure against these principles. And we don't measure against you must do weighted shortest job first for prioritizing work items. It just highlights a series of outcomes that would look great when we get it. And what we can improve relentlessly is just simply saying, what are you learning from understanding all these other principles? And how are you using the data from understanding the principles to keep driving your improvement against the things that we think are our leading measures, right? So the improve relentlessly is taking all the data we get from our cadence of using the principles to see how well we're working to keep moving us forward. And then the drive out fear principle, actually, got to give credit to a guy called Alex Patworth, who worked with us for a while. And, you know, we'd introduced him a little bit to Demon's work. And this is straight from Demon's work, you know, his, his 14 management principles. And there's so much that we can learn from Demon's work even today. I mean, you know, it was the 80s when his work got popularized, but he was a genius. He was ahead of his time. And actually, when you look at his work, then it's still groundbreaking today. If you really get into the depths of what he was talking about, then it's a as applicable today, or even more applicable, actually, based on lots of the things that are going on in the world today. So Drive Out Fear came directly out of Demon's work. And you know some of the practices that sit underneath Drive Out Fear for us are 
you know, the team is able to demonstrate a clear purpose. You know, what is the actual team there for? You know, what, in customer terms, what's the purpose of the thing that they've, they're actually part of? And a big piece around trust and humility. Uh, leaders making decisions in the work is a key practice under that. And that, what that means is generally what you find in organisations, most of the decisions are made miles away from the work with a rag status, which is completely wrong. And another practice around protecting each other, but a little bit more about the leaders make decisions in the work, right? A key practice for us connected with making work visible and, and aligning work is if you've got the right measures that are visual, the leaders who are closest to the work can make far better judgment calls based on the data about how they improve how the work works. Now, one of the key things that we learned from our systems days in the operation was, and this is one thing that really kind of does great on me quite substantially is when I see a lot of the, you know, the, the agile kind of community talking about things like psychological safety and, and engagement and empowerment and all that kind of thing. And what I've learned from the theory and in practice is all those things are free when you change the system. When you get, you get psychological safety, you get much more engagement and motivated colleagues when you change the system, right? When you change the measures, when you get rid of targets, when you get rid of some traditional ways of thinking about managing work and redesigning it for flow, all those things around engagement and happy people come for free because you've changed the system and removed lots of the things which create bad workplaces and the need for somebody to come up with a psycho psychological safety program are created by a bad system. When you change it, then things just work out for free. So those principles and practices are completely intertwined in a system and, and we find that what we are actually seeing really well is when those things shift as a leading measure, when we get better at working this way, then we see the improvements in flow and value release. Yeah, Justin, that's been an absolutely amazing part of the experience for me is, is how much, again, I think there's all this focus on culture, on safety, those those are important things. But when they're not baked into the systems through the wrong, I mean, you've nailed all the points, right? The, the, the wrong targets, the wrong indicators, the wrong performance management approaches, it's just fascinating that none of those activities actually produce much better work environments. But what we've seen in terms of focusing on some of the metrics that you mentioned, so end-to-end -end cycle time, so flow time, the whole time through a value stream, it doesn't measure one silo. It doesn't, it's not no longer development or operations or something upstream or, or a government's process that people are blaming. Everyone's just focused on improving this, this one metric, which is customer-centric, how quickly customers get value, how quickly they, they get features or quality improvements. And once everyone's focused on that one metric, it's just amazing what happens. You need some psychological safety and, and to you need to drive out some fear for people to make that visible. Once they exactly. make it visible, all of a sudden they're not being blamed. The system is being blamed and the bottle, an artificial bottleneck that's there is being blamed right. or an underinvestment in, in the architecture, which everyone done it, it exactly blame from the people to the system once again you make these things visible and i think the way that you said it i think is just such a good way of articulating it is to me it's always about what you said is it's about leading indicators and and this is why i started the flow framework the way i did right on the left is the flow metrics which are the leading indicators on the right you've got the business results if you're only looking at the business results you just yeah. won't get there the feedback loop is too slow with flow right. your feedback loop can is, is a sprint right this can be a week or two 
And so the question to me is, and I think this is what you're doing so effectively right now, which so many are struggling with, is making those leading indicators accessible and understandable to leaders. Because of course, our leaders have been on the finance side, on the business side, everyone's been very much focused and trained on the financial metrics, be they revenue or conversions or pipeline or, or, or yeah. cost. But the way you're approaching it is actually making these leading indicators through these principles understandable and important to leadership because that's when they can affect change and actually support their teams to yeah. improve and go faster. So, yeah, can you, can you say just a bit more about that and kind of, the, you know, the missteps you've seen in terms of over-focus on really the lagging indicators? Yeah, I mean, like over-focus on traditional lagging indicators when you're trying to produce software, right, is things like due dates that we talked about. Yeah. Right? People focusing yeah. on due dates, exactly. right, as a, as a lagging measure. It's like, yeah, fine, great. We've hit the due date. But what was our flow efficiency? Less than 1%. Yeah. Well, how much is that costing us then? I don't know. It's it's, it's, it's massive amount of capacity being wasted in the yeah. system. You can't see it because you don't measure it. Because we measure due dates and we rag state this the hell out of everything. When we green, everyone's happy. But we could be sitting on more than 50% waste in the flow. Yep. But you just can't see it. So it's kind of like, I think to your point right around the masterclass kind of series that we put together was an attempt to take these principles and work with senior leaders so that they get some of the counterintuitive things that we talked about. Like when we do the optimize the flow of work masterclass, which is where we've started, we unpick things like flow efficiency in there to show that if you reduce the amount of waste work in a system end to end and you, you increase, you decrease the flow time, there's an economic impact to that because essentially the waste work is wasted capacity, which you're paying for. So it's a key thing, I think from a, from a transformation perspective is to really get senior people or people who are involved in like um, finance, for example, or cost of change or cost of delivery to understand that when you actually improve flow, the economic benefits, the economies of flow far outweigh. They completely much better than the economies of scale and the way we've measured unit cost in an organization for years. And that's one of, again, I owe a lot to John in terms of the way I've been taught around the difference between the economies of scale and the economies of flow, right? But in an organization which has built itself on the economies of scale measuring unit cost, right, it's just been done for so many years that the actual ability to see the waste in the system has just been disguised by the measures that we've been using for years. So it's there, but we just can't see it because we've been relied so heavily on the wrong measures produce as rag statuses and we take great comfort when we see a green. Yeah. So it's in the data because we've, we've now, you know, we're staring at, at a ton of this data now and seeing what the effect that due dates have on extending flow time indefinitely and flow efficiency just tanking. It's just fascinating. And of course, then, then they're exacerbated by scope changes that then in actually yep. increase the level of whip. And it's just incredible to see how just how endemic across the industry yeah. these kinds of bad practices are which is why again i think you're absolutely onto something in the way you've approached it with transformation leadership at Lloyd's through this masterclass vehicle and of just pointing out the the kind of flaws in in misunderstanding the, the some, some key laws of physics that are as, as important as gravity right that this whip yeah. and theory 
is basically uh, as significant as gravity is in physics. And and if you paint it the right way, I think I, here's the important thing to me is that you've painted it the right way. And I was you know honored to be part of this these sessions and watch some of this, but actually painting it as these really important leading indicators for executives is critical. So one of the missteps I think you and I, I've been seeing this a ton lately, right? Which is shifts to cloud, which everyone realizes is important. And they're very important economics to cloud. But if you don't actually understand the economics of flow and you move to cloud, I've seen this over and over and over, which is there's a cloud deployment and nothing, significant investment, great technologies invested in, and nothing is moving significantly faster because the economies of flow were ignored and cloud was simply seen as a way of optimizing long-term cost economics rather than doing the thing that Adrian Cockcroft, who I think is, again, one of the kind of clearest thinkers and communicators on this, said is the, the one important metric for CEOs which is just in the end flow time, how long it's taking to deliver value when the, the key yeah. economics of flow, which then has you, of course, unpack all the things slowing it down, be that, you know, the, the fact that you've just lifted and shifted an application or that you've got, you've actually done the right things from a software architecture point of view, but none of your process has changed. None of the way that you're measuring people has changed. So you're not going to get any of the benefits of that massive cloud investment but, that you're making. Or you wouldn't even know. Or you won't know. That's right. You won't know how much exactly. You don't know how much how much benefit you are getting. So, yeah, it's been this is this has been a fascinating thing. Is in terms of these things that are fundamentally have good principles behind them. Cloud, the way they're being deployed. You know, you you touched on the Spotify model, right? When my teams first started adopting some of the notions of the Spotify model, that seemed good, but they were focused on flow, not on some cookie cutter thing that came from a very nice white paper. But again, we're seeing these things completely misapplied right now without the right kind of physics underpinning them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, I just reflected on a little note I wrote here in terms of one of the things for, say, for example, you know, senior leaders looking at software teams, right? If Go back to manufacturing, right? And queuing theory and what we talked about utilization. As a factory manager looking at a physical unit, and I know you've done a lot of work with BMW, right? In your book, The Case Study. And... As a factory manager, you would look at a system and, and you would know that how much demand was coming in right from the customer and how much capacity you had. And they're fundamentals. If you can't look, if one outstrips the other, i.e. demand is greater than capacity, you're in trouble, right? You cannot have good flow in that environment because you'll end up basically whoever shouts aloud is scheduling, you'll end up making you know more stock than you require. It'll just go to pot from day one if you've got more work to do then you can handle when you think then about a level of aggregation whether you're looking at a portfolio an it portfolio right or at a, a software development team those principles that principle about utilization whatever a level of aggregation you're looking at they hold true so if you've got a team with more work that it can do you'll never achieve good speed to market you know if you're looking at portfolio of work with more work in it and you've got capacity you stuff from day one you get context switching you get the business shouting where's my thing you yeah. get changing priorities you get multitasking and you get slowing down the productivity and you get into a vicious cycle so you know even at the at that basic level of aggregation of how much work's coming in how much work can i do these are really counterintuitive things in service organizations when you get further back in terms of where software and it is done a little bit more in focus at the front end because you've got real customers calling but you know the taking those principles into software delivery are counterintuitive number one but actually if we don't get those things right we'll never achieve better flow so that's i think a good way to think about the level of aggregation for these things they work at whichever level you look at whatever system 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so I think it's amazing that to see what you've put in place and what you can put in place on that front, because I think it, it needs to be visible at those higher levels, right? A lot of the technical teams already understand some of these dynamics, right? And, and as you said, these are not, you know, the, with your principles and practices, these are dynamics. They're, you can't just take one and apply it. You actually, there's an interdependency between these things. Yeah, they're all aligned. They're all, they, they all work together. I mean, that's the thing we are learning about these principles and practices now, that they are so intertangled with each other for your point earlier around drive out fear, how do you actually get to a position where you start to drive out fear? Well, what we found is that if you take a team and you 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 work really hard on improving flow by really understanding the systemic constraints, not the people aspect, then you start to show that the constraints on delivery are systemic, which in turn then, through the right measures, start to show the real problems in the system, which are not people-related. And then you start to drive out fear because you're using different metrics, you're producing different results, and then you start to get to a position where, oh, you know, this this is this is actually really cool. We're really motoring, we're doing some yeah. fantastic stuff. Can we do more? Can we do more? Can we do more? But on that doesn't always work that way because sometimes you need a really brave, brave leader who might be working in a in a in a system where we haven't driven out fear. There is quite a fearful environment. It is kind of delivery date focused. It is very much driven on all measures and it's very difficult to break the cycle. And you do see a lot of leaders who are completely busy, you know, doing their best in systems which are got flow efficiency of less than 1%. But because yeah. we haven't got the right measures, we can't see it. and We can never make any time to get better. So it's definitely, you know, we're not going to get into it today, but what we've learned as well is about how do you intervene in those systems to actually make them better? And there's definitely a piece where we take our kind of value stream leaders offline for a bit so they actually study yep. what's going on in their work end-to-end. What we find is we've got some transformational kind of results. And the only reason we've got those transformational results is we've taken the senior leaders to go and study the flow themselves. Yeah, and it's, I mean, here's been a really, I think that's a key thing is that this has been an interesting learning, for, you know, for me, with some of what you've been doing, where I've been seeing elsewhere, and you mentioned early on, is that what concerned you early in software was that it looked like fifty percent of systems weren't weren't being used there, and this, the standards report had seventy percent. And I was I yeah. remember reading those things early on. It's like, yeah, this this is this is completely consistent with my anecdotal experiences, which is just the sheer yeah. amount of waste in the code bases and the systems is, is astronomical. 1% yep. flow efficiencies is, is, is egregious, right? This is, you can imagine yep. manufacturing a 1% flow efficiency. So I think the, the, the really amazing thing about that is that these systems are actually easy to improve. So one of my favorite things I've seen, and, and I'm, I'm just actually, I'm very happy that as, as always borderline whether to keep the happiness metric in the flow framework or not, right? And, and I'm just so happy I kept it because it gets back to this drive out fear. When you start seeing a flow efficiency go from one to 2%, just by yeah. getting rid of some of the, the most obvious bottleneck or simply just by doing what you've been saying to do, just reduce whip. Right, just just manage with properly. You see, employee engagement scores go up so quickly that no yeah. amount of productivity could actually do. Or, or, or absolutely, you know, absolutely, yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. I totally agree. I mean, you know, your, your results are consistent with ours, and it's not just software delivery systems. But every time we've gone in and improved how the work works from the customer perspective, you get happier people every time. Yeah, exactly. happier employees every time without doing anything 
yeah. around, you know, a psychological safety campaign or, yeah. and I'm saying it with a tongue in cheek, but we tend to go after those things completely because somebody said that we should do an engagement program and it'll sort the problems out. Well, it's not. It's because the system doesn't work. That's the problem. Yeah. No, and you're frustrated when you're you're stuck on other people working on a bad I mean, system. Yeah. There's a couple of things, right? Again, I, I'll always up back to Deming, but his 95.5 or 94.6 rule around, you know, it's, he estimated that you know, 94% of the variation in the system was common cause, i.e. the design of the thing, and only 4% of it was special cause, which a lot of people have associated to people. So Deming's theory was always that systems will perform perfectly with how they've been designed. Yes. You know, yeah, yeah, they will. And better performance is in the way that we've designed our system or, or how we start to redesign the system based on the lots of the laws of flow and the principles and practices that we're talking about. But And that's what I think we're benefiting from is that I think we are actually benefiting from the fact that we've got a lot of different thinkers in our team, in my team. We've got a lovely blend of people who've got some brilliant agile experience and a technically very good and they've come from an agilist background and we've also got quite a few people who've come from a manufacturing background and we've got people who've come from a, a systems thinking background and it's it's allowed us to be critical friends of each other as well mm-hmm. and it's allowed us to really challenge lots of the things that are out there if you like in terms of like you said the cookie cutter models and now you do transformation and agile and digital and you know, service design so on and so forth and we've been able to really knit a lot of our experience together to come up with a way of based on our core strategy of flow well how do you how do you make it better how do you improve it what are the things that are currently wrong so yes i think we've we've learned a lot in a very rapid time frame about how to do this but i think one of the key things of how we've been able to do that is by keeping our strategy really simple and centered on flow yeah as we're almost at time there's there's something that you're connecting a few dots for me here is this this notion that you said early on that Toyota could not afford to produce like Ford. I think we're in this situation right now where a lot of companies who are transforming traditional businesses simply cannot afford to produce like Amazon, cannot afford to produce like Google, right? This is the point that we're in. And it's it's interesting what you said. I just want to make sure I've, I've got this right is there's this over-focus on economy, economies of scale within leadership of organizations who want to set up their digital game because you know they know tech giants will come after finance at some point, will go after healthcare, will go after other industries. They need to grow into their stock prices without that actually that focus on the economies of flow. And I think that you know the way that you say it makes it kind of clear to me that that's what's taking things sideways. If, if you don't start understand the economics of flow, you'll never get the economics of scale right. And of course, what the tech giants have done is, is actually both. They've got the economics of flow that they've managed to scale, which means that they measure and manage scale in a completely different way than exactly. other they're used to, right? They've got this yeah. completely aligned product and business value stream and te- technology and organizational architecture. Which, yes. which is actually how you scale the economics of flow, not, not by continuing with these separations and these metrics that cause silos to form and handoffs to form. So yes. did, did I get that right? Or anything else you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, it's like, if you think about it, right, that if you've got an organization that's built its legacy on a financial system that says that the more you produce, the lower the unit cost will be, right, which is what the economies of scale is built on, then you'll find that the organization has been specialized and functionalized the hell out of, basically, because we think it's cheaper to do it that way, right? And if you drag those principles that 
mass production is cheaper across the software production, what you'll find is we'll be measuring individual productivity of coders. We'll be keeping people busy all the time. We'll be maximizing resources and utilization. And all those things make you slower and drive cost up. You know, yeah. And one of the things that, again, John taught me again is that every time you try and manage cost, your costs will go up. Every time. And what Olo learned was it wasn't the cost of the unit that counted. It was the cost of the manufacturer of the whole. So it's the whole system cost, which is really important. And if you think about what we talked about from a flow efficiency perspective, flow efficiency would be hidden completely if you're using unit cost based on economy of scale accounting measures, right? You can't see it. It's not there. So, And when you move and change your measures to things like flow efficiency, you go, oh, my word, the, ex- the cost of delivering this piece of code or software is phenomenally higher than what we thought end-to-end, but our unit cost looks really good. I mean, that's just cannot think of a better way of articulating that, right? Every time you manage the cost, you drive cost up. Justin, this is amazing. Any other pearls of wisdom you want to drop on us before we wrap up? That's. I mean, again, we, we haven't got it completely right. There's lots of learning still to do, but I just think that we are... I was inspired by your work as well, I must say that. I mean, when the world's met, really, around the problem we were trying to solve, I think that's the key for us. Like, we're not, like I said, we're not there yet, right? But the simplification of our strategy back to the flow and what that means for the thinking change that's required like i said you know if organizations have been built on the economies of scale the measures the structural way that we put it together in terms of the functionalization and specialization if you don't tackle those things in your transformation then to your point right lo and behold you can do as much cloud stuff as you want right but you'll never ever get the benefits that you thought you were going to get because you just haven't changed the thinking or the fabric of the organization along with it so and i think that's why our transformation will work at some stage because i think we're trying to do it right because we've identified all of those things that are wrong with our organizations that generally put together and measured exactly okay justin thank you so much again i think the this, this i hope people can internalize especially this right is that the core to steering this is, is by focusing on economies of flow rather than economy of scale and the other ways of, of doing things so justin thank you so much we'll put a link to john's work there and i hope that people take some inspiration from this on how to get things off on the right footing in terms of their their effort so thanks again A huge thank you to Justin for joining me on this episode. For more, follow me and my journey on LinkedIn, Twitter, or using the hashtags Nick plus one or project to product. You can reach out to Justin on LinkedIn. I have a new episode every two weeks, so hit subscribe to join us again. You can also search for project to product to get the book. And remember that all author proceeds go to supporting women and minorities in technology. Thanks, stay safe, and until next time.